Welcome back, everyone, to uh, day six of our 10 Days, 10 Mahler Symphonies project here at Attention to Detail. Today we're actually doing the seventh symphony. Um, and I'm joined today by special guests, my close friend, assistant conductor of the Houston Grand Opera Orchestra, Ben Manis. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about... Uh, Maybe yourself, but also what you're doing, what, what's going on at HGO, especially during the uh, these crazy times. Man, well, like just about everybody, uh, we are not doing any performances for the foreseeable future. In fact, the rest of our season has been canceled. So that is performances of Zalame and the Magic Flute and Rigoletto. Uh, so right now, I am actually holed up in my friend's basement in Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> That seems uh, like a, I figured if I'm going to be quarantined, might as well go for a hike. I I think you made the right call. It's that's that's going to be better than Indianapolis. I feel like for a two month quarantine stretch here. Yeah, man. Especially not knowing how long you have to be here. Yeah. Uh, it's just crazy. It is. It's it's crazy times. Well, I um I specifically thought of you for the seventh symphony because I remember. And I, I'll tell you as well, I pulling the audio clips for this podcast, I obviously had to go with a recording that I remember the two of us and some other people as well listening to very late yes. at night several times of, uh, of Tenstedt's last performance. And I remember you, you, you seem to know this piece very well, which is why I uh, wanted to bring you on for this one specifically. Can you talk about your... Uh, relationship with this particular Mahler symphony? Sure. Uh, well, it is it is my favorite Mahler symphony, which I think is unusual. It's this piece that most people uh, who know maybe Mahler 2, Mahler 1, Mahler 5, uh, maybe they're not so familiar with Mahler 7. Um, I uh, have assisted it, covered it, um, and I had an opportunity to conduct uh, the last movement of it, which was great. Uh, but the thing I really love about it and one of the reasons that I'm so glad you chose that recording to take the excerpts from uh, is that this piece is so raw and so extreme uh, from one thing to the next, everything to the, to the sort of max from Mahler, characters, dynamics, everything. Uh, and I think that particular recording that you chose uh, really, really brings all that out. Uh, in a way that doesn't apologize for it. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to to listen. Can you even maybe give us a little? We haven't actually talked that much uh, yet in these Mahler breakdowns about the kind of differing interpretations out there that exist, and who are some famous Mahler conductors. Do you have a do you have conductors that you tend to gravitate towards, or styles of interpretation of Mahler that you you like? Yeah. Uh, of course, and this is a, actually a particularly interesting piece to look at that in terms of, because there are recordings of this piece which are just over an hour long, and then there are recordings of the piece which are over 90 minutes long. <laughs> so, so you know, that's a, a huge difference based on various tempi or what you choose to do with it. Uh, this 10-step recording uh, is my favorite one, and I do love basically all his Mahler. Um Depending on the piece, I sort of have different favorites. I mean, the last movement of this is so fun to listen to um, in Schulte's recording with the Chicago Symphony. Oh, yeah. 
the breasts just blow you away. Yeah. Um, but I do think uh, also in the first movement in particular, Bernstein really brings out some of the sort of craziness of it uh, and, and keeps it uncomfortable in a way which I think is actually really good for this piece. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting thing in Mahler that these these conductors, Bernstein generally takes really slow tempi, but like you said, he's Bernstein himself was a pretty extreme person, and so it's all about the extreme. Schulte's recordings all are about the brass section, and some people really like that. Tenstedt is really Tenstedt seems to have the most complete interpretations of Mahler in my mind. Anyways, we've we've been listening primarily to Bernstein so far, but we'll we'll go with Tenstedt specifically for this piece because because we've had some very uh, late nights blasting the lat, last movement of this, so I'm I'm looking forward. Great, me too. All right, so let's uh, let's dive in. Let's. There's not that much actually to talk about uh, off the off the bat about the symphony and the whole. I want to get right down to the actual music, but I'll just mention quickly, the piece was written in 1905. We've been reviewing these symphonies. Mahler basically wrote a symphony every two years in this in this period of his life. And the the really interesting thing about this symphony, specifically, we've been talking about the kind of worlds that these symphonies evoke, and this one has always been associated with music of the night, specifically because there are two movements in this piece, the second and the fourth, which are titled Nachtmusik, which means night music. We've talked a little bit about night music elements in some of his other symphonies, but this, clearly there's a fascination with darkness, with shadow, and with night in especially the first four movements of this symphony. But I think, aside from that kind of fascination with with night, there's really a lot of, there's a lot of, like the Sixth Symphony that we reviewed yesterday, many more uh, kind of classical or romantic German, Austro-Germanic approaches to writing a symphony. This is a very absolute, non-programmatic piece, kind of like the Sixth, where it's about the themes, it's about the transformation of the themes, and the program is much murkier. We, we know that we're in a kind of night world, a shadowy world, but outside of that, there's not so much story that we're going to really follow in this particular piece. That being said, as as you mentioned, it's a, it's a phenomenal symphony. And so let's dive right into the, the first movement. Um, the first movement is this large, large sonata form, and we've talked... A little already about sonata form. We talked a lot about it in the Sixth Symphony because there were two massive, massive sonata movements in that symphony. And so for our listeners who might remember what that is, we have an exposition recap and development, which will have generally two themes that are very contrasting, and often there's an introduction. So there's an introduction in this, uh, this piece as well, and let's listen to how the first movement opens it's this kind of funeral march-esque processional introduction. You can hear the night music, the darkness, right off the bat in this Seventh Symphony.
Well, there's two things I want to point out about the very opening of the symphony. Uh, the first is Mahler's rhythm, these distinctive rhythms that we hear in the beginning, ba, da-da-da, da-da-da, which come back throughout the piece um, and become really important later, as we'll see. But also, that first solo instrument that you hear, that brass instrument, uh, a very unusual instrument, which Mahler calls for a tenor horn, uh, which is sort of like what we think of as a as a baritone or a euphonium, um, and it's only one actually of uh, a number of weird instruments that Mahler calls for in this piece. We'll see in the fourth movement he actually uses uh, a guitar and a mandolin. Uh, but so he's setting us up right off the bat that this is uh, an unusual symphony. Yeah, I think it's it's. This symphony, along with the sixth, have been cited for using a lot, a lot of instruments and a lot of weird instruments. And like you said, opening with this kind of tenor horn that has this like, kind of strained quality right off the bat. So then, still in the introduction, we get this other theme that's going to be important, this, this kind of march theme. And I want to play that for our listeners as well, so we can, we can remember that as well. So there we're introduced to this this other theme, this march-like theme that we're still in the introduction, but this this march idea is going to come back several times over the course of the piece, so we should keep it in our ears. But as I mentioned, this is still the the introduction, the slow introduction. Usually the introduction to a sonata is is mostly slow music. And so these themes that we're being introduced to now are not actually going to be the main themes of the the sonata form if we're thinking about this this sonata form as as the the large scale form of the movement so then we get a little more of the uh tenor horn-esque music and then we move into the exposition of the actual exposition where we're going to hear the two main themes of this sonata so let's hear how we transition into the exposition and then the the first primary theme of this sonata Yeah, and you know the interesting thing about his fragment that we hear, we hear this thing, it goes, 
which is this this series of descending fourths, which interestingly, I want our listeners to keep that in our in their mind the the descending fourth idea. Or we hear those those are going to play a really really important role in this entire symphony. But then, as you mentioned, the theme actually is. And then it continues, but it opens with that same fourth. And so he introduces this falling fourth idea, which I want our listeners to, to keep in the back of their minds as we, we move through this movement, especially in the whole symphony. So then we get our second theme. We're expecting two themes, heightened contrast. Let's listen to how the, the very differing second theme sounds. Yeah, so as as Ben mentioned earlier, a big idea of this whole symphony is just just sheer contrast. Totally different world in this second theme from that kind of quick, agile, but also imposing shadow-like theme of the of the the primary theme of of the exposition. And you know, I think it's interesting in th these type of themes that Mahler writes. It's similar to the second theme if we remember all the way back to the second theme of, of the first movement of the sixth symphony, similar type of theme where it really has these, these intense swells and kind of brief moments of, of passion. It's a really quintessential Mahler technique is to add these kind of passionate outbursts in the middle of a theme where we might not expect them. So that's, those are the two themes that we get in this, this exposition. Then if you continue listening on, we get that same march music that uh, we heard right way back in the introduction of this symphony that we played for you earlier, and then we we end the development. I mean, the exposition with a little more of the primary theme, which is a little odd. It kind of we hear primary theme, secondary theme, then we go back to the primary theme. That's not super normal, but but Mahler breaks tons of rules all over the place, and so this is just one example. So then in, we get a development of, of these ideas. And actually, the beginning of this development for me is very standard. And he takes the same, the, the, these thematic ideas, especially that falling forth idea, plays with it, puts it in different keys. But then I want to highlight for us two important moments in this development, kind of breakthrough moments. We've been talking about these breakthroughs throughout our breakdowns of, of the Mahler symphonies. And we get the first one where we notice that something clearly has happened here that's jarring, totally taking us out of the, the action of the development. So let's hear that first breakthrough moment when the action comes to a stop. Feels like we hear something from another musical world. 
Well, I forgot how much I love how Tencha does that passage. Yeah. Uh, one thing to point out here, uh, typically in the development section of a sonata form movement, uh, a composer will take us to all sorts of uh, unexpected keys, so we feel very far away from where we were in the exposition. Then when we come to the recap, we come back to the home key and we feel as though we've gone someplace and returned. But in this first movement, Mahler is using such a chromatic tonal world. There's really no place he could take us harmonically that would make us feel like we're really someplace new. So one thing to look for in this development section is passages like this where Mahler sort of freezes time, uh, where there is such suspension in the music, where all this rhythmic uh, march music that we had in the first part of the movement is gone. Um, and instead, there's sort of uh, just a, an, an unending line. Uh, and I think he uses that as a tool then, when we come back to the recap, to make us feel as though we've come back to where we were with this rhythmic march music. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned that, but I, the interesting thing about this breakthrough moment is partly that we get, we, we land on this note of B-flat, and we hear some B-flat harmonies, which uh, I mentioned in, the, in our breakdown of the Sixth Symphony yesterday as well. We were in the key of A minor, and we went to the key of E-flat, which is a tritone away, the furthest interval. And it's interesting that he's landed again as far away as possible to give the maximum sense that you can of this kind of dissonance or separation from, as you said, that we want to go away and then come back. Also, I should point out, we hear in that passage, someone play... which again is our falling forth idea from, from as you mentioned, Ben, when we, when we hear that germ of the, mo the, the first theme before it actually comes to fruition. So let's listen to the other passage. There are two passages like this. Let's catch the other one too because it's, it's so fun to listen to and also important to the form that happens just a little bit later in the development. So Ben, I'm curious. Have you um, have you seen this video of my first experience with Mahler Seven? Embarrassingly, but this is when I was a little kid. Was stumbling across a YouTube video, which is called MTT MTT Michael Tilson Thomas, very very famous conductor, missing a cue. Have you seen that video? I have seen that video. I forgot it was from this passage. This exact passage. And I felt so bad. It's it's a funny video, but if you watch that video closely, I don't know if you've watched it recently, not MTT's fault. What happens? I haven't watched it recently. He gives a cue for that uh, for the woodwind player to come in, 
and they don't come in, and it looks like he missed a cue. He gives another cue, they still don't come in, and then he gives a third cue. Oh, oh no, it's to the trumpet player for the bum, but a bum, but a bum. But, <laughs> but yeah, he gives three cues, and the video is like, MTT screwing up, missing a cue, but actually, clearly, the player had, like, fallen asleep, because MTT gives the cue at the right spot. Uh-huh. Yet. Have no, the, I, have not, I have not watched that video with the score. Has that ever happened? I think that was your first experience. Has that ever happened to you in a performance? Give a cue and someone's just not looking at all? Uh, I don't think that's ever happened to me in a performance. I have certainly given a wrong cue in a performance, as I'm sure every other conductor has. Oh, yeah. Uh, and we have all had the experience of having our butts saved by various orchestra members. Yeah, exactly. I don't, I'm not going to throw any names under the bus, for sure, but I used to conduct, in college, I conducted orchestras of just students, and there was one in particular where in the dress rehearsal, there was this kid who I knew struggled to play this one entrance. So in the dress rehearsal, which was the same day, we did this spot probably five times just to ice it to make sure. And in the performance, I looked up like eight measures beforehand to give this guy the cue. And in the performance, he was on his cell phone. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Can't make that stuff up. Yep. You hate to see that. You hate to see that. It was a good, it was, it was a fun, uh, it's a fun story to tell, though. <laughs> so then, uh, one more important part of this, uh, development that I want to play for our listeners, which comes shortly after this second breakthrough moment. We get this beautiful passage in B major. It's hard to know what to make of this exactly. Let me play for you this, this, this passage. Yeah, it's a fantastic passage. Let's—we didn't even plan it. You've 
excellent segue. We'll listen to the very end of this passage as it goes back into the recap. So, as Ben mentioned, we get this passage in B major, which he mentioned is the dominant of E minor. We hear a, a chord something like this, which would naturally go to our chord of, of E minor, and that's what composers often do over long stretches of music. Build this tension that leads to some sort of resolution. But really interestingly here, we get this big passage in B major, and suddenly you hear the music completely stop. And we go back to that music of the of the very introduction, and it's soft, and it's not the arrival that we've really been expecting. So we got this huge B major passage that was building up to a big glorious recapitulation, maybe of the fast music that we heard before. But in fact, we go back to the music of the very introduction. And so we kind of get an inter slow introduction to this recapitulation as well. So then we, of course, recapitulate a lot of the music. We hear both themes again. And then interestingly, I won't play any more music from this movement, but just to mention, it's a really interesting formal quirk in that the second to last music that we hear is that march music that we've been talking about that came really close to the beginning of the movement that's interestingly inserted right in there to kind of book it. It was the second theme we heard, now it's the second to last theme that we hear in this piece, so it's kind of bookending our, our form here. And then we expect maybe to end with this slow introduction music once more to really put an arch on the whole idea, but instead we get a really fiery, exciting coda, which I'll let our... We have a lot of fiery, fiery, exciting codas that we will listen to here, so I'll let our listeners take that one themselves. Any last uh, thoughts on the first movement, or should we keep going? Let's keep going. we got plenty more to talk about. Exactly. I think so. So, next movement is our first knocked music movement, knocked music one. And the the idea of knocked music is, is a really, like, the, the idea of the night, as we mentioned in... Our previous episode on the Sixth Symphony was really a prevalent idea in German Romanticism. It's the dominating theme in Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, the idea of night and day. And we've also talked about in the Third and Fourth Symphonies, we talked a little bit about uh, Nietzsche, the text that Nietzsche uses in the Third and Fourth, the text that Mahler uses from Nietzsche in the Third and Fourth Symphonies. And this is also text about midnight, about night transfiguring into day. 
And so these two Nachtmusik movements really are dealing, and the third movement, are dealing in this world of German Romanticism and its concern with, with night. So let's listen to the opening of this movement that really has this kind of midnight-esque quality, hard to describe other than that. Yeah, I totally agree. It's this is much more of a natural sounding movement as we've had in previous symphonies than than the other night music that's going to come. I let it play a little bit there because we actually got into the main kind of scherzo section of the movement, but also because I wanted our listeners, our really keen listeners to catch something that we heard there at the very end right before we started this new theme where we heard If our listeners remember back to the Sixth Symphony, there was the entire idea of this Sixth Symphony, the one that we kept coming back to, was the idea of major to minor. And we hear that again some, for some reason 
right here before we start this theme. And I'll also point out that the scherzo theme of this movement, it goes... And we hear this... Oops, sorry. Where it shifts almost immediately from this minor idea to this major idea. So clearly we're going to be playing with that same world of the 6th symphony here in this movement of the 7th. So now let's listen. This is kind of laid out as something of a scherzo. Um, and so let's listen to the first kind of trio section of this, this night music, the first trio music that we hear a little bit later in the movement. So we hear some of that first trio music, if you want to call it that. And then we hear a little more music and we come to our... Uh, we actually, after that first trio, we, we go back to that idea of the opening, that kind of horn call that we heard. And then we hear a second trio. And this is something that composers would occasionally do and Mahler does here is to have not one but two trio sections of a scherzo. And so then we hear the second trio and this is how that music sounds. exactly what I was going to say about this music as well. This this somehow inflects back to that, uh, the Jewish music that we've heard at various moments crop up in, in many of his symphonies, and interestingly that takes the place of the second trio here. So then, really interesting layout of this movement, unlike what we might expect from, from a standard scherzo. We hear again that that introduction music, the horn call, and the major minor... minor motif that that we've come to expect but then we get actually something that's called an arch form used by composers like Bartok a lot and not so much by Mahler but we're going we go in an arch and so now we we've we've come to the middle point of this movement and we go backwards so we hear this same Jewish music the second trio again then we hear a tiny bit of of the main section, the the main scherzo section. Interested, I'm not sure why that's there, 
but then we hear the first trio again, and then we go back to the uh, the mu main music of the of the scherzo portion of the music, and in fact, we even hear that in horn call introduction one last time to uh, to end the movement. So let's just listen to the very end of this movement. It's a fantastic movement. We're going to skim a little bit these these middle three movements because formally they're not quite as interesting as the outer two, but but it doesn't make them any less fantastic to listen to. So here's the very end of this uh, second movement. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In C minor. This, this jogged my memory, especially because then, in that second movement, uh, first movement of Mahler 2, the movement ends with this descending uh, chromatic triplets in the whole orchestra. And these descending pizzicato triplets uh, made me think exactly of that. Yeah. Well, man, I didn't... And also, you know, the, that second... First movement of the second, it ends boom, boom, with those pizzicati. And we... Yeah. kind of get the same thing right here. Exactly. Weird ending to this movement. Also, there's a tam-tam hit at the end of this movement, which we've talked about already, is the tam-tam is reserved for unique moments, kind of death-infused moments. I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't thought of that, but it's a good point. Maybe a hearkening back to, which was a very kind of dark and death-filled movement, first movement of the second. Yeah. So, on to the third. Yes. All right, the third movement, the the next scherzo, the true scherzo, if we want to call it that. Interesting tempo marking from from Mahler of this movement. It says Schattenhaft, which means shadowy, eerie. It's a this is really a scherzo that's a picture of darkness, of the demonic quality that he was he was so excellent at depicting. Let's listen to the beginning of this. Uh, scherzo, and you'll undoubtedly hear that Schattenhof shadowy quality in this in this movement.
so yeah, we, we hear these kind of eerie, shadowy, ghost-like figures. It starts kind of what will be something of a perpetual motion type of movement for us, where we hear these triplets going throughout the entire movement, but also just a really interesting opening with the timpani, with the low instruments, very kind of picturesque of, of shadows, of, of a ghost, something like that moving through the dark woods, as we've already mentioned. So then we we go along, and we're still in the... This is uh, a, a scherzo movement as well, and so this one we get a pretty standard scherzo, trio, scherzo, and then a little bit at the end that we'll talk about. But in the main section of the scherzo, the A section, if we're going A, B, A, we get two themes. The second theme is... Uh, this kind of waltz-like theme, and I want us to hear that as well, because that plays an important role in, in this movement. about night music. Um, I, I think this movement represents even more than night music, sort of night nightmare music, especially the, in the, the opening section. But this waltz, I think, also fits into that. Uh, Mahler was sort of a master of parody, a master of sarcasm. And to me, at least, you should feel free to disagree with me, Jacob, but to me, at least, this waltz uh, just feels kind of ridiculous. It feels... It feels so happy and so out of place and so sort of out of the blue. And, uh, and, and for me, what I hear is Mahler sort of thumbing his nose at, at this Viennese tradition, this Viennese high society. Uh, he's including it here in his shadowy nightmare music. Yeah, 100% agree. I think we've, we've mentioned that in previous breakdowns as well, the idea of irony or parody in Mahler and which moments are meant to be sincere, which moments are meant to be ironic. And for me, I, I totally agree. It's very clear here. This is, this is like you said, I think nightmare is an excellent way to describe it. It's like some demented clown waltz that, that this, this is not a actual nice, yeah, buttoned up waltz. Excellent. I, I, I'm a hundred percent on board. So then we get a trio as mentioned let's hear the transition into this this trio from our scherzo section and then some of the trio music which is which is very contrasting as trios often are
So we hear that trio music, very contrasting this this shadow like music of the scherzo. But again, to call our attention to something that's that's going on here, as we've had in the second movement, as well as this this movement, the first few notes we hear of this trio are. Normally we would expect to hear, but we already get this inflection from major to minor. So yet again, even in this kind of much more pastoral, soulful music, we're hearing these inflections major to minor, and he's really playing with this idea that we got a lot of in the second movement. So we hear some of this trio, we go back to the scherzo as we might expect, I just wanted to play one passage towards the end of this scherzo simply because it's got such an interesting uh, and jarring moment of music, one of the most jarring moments in this piece. So let's, let's listen to that just to, to catch this, one of the highlights of this, this symphony. Yeah, I had to include that because there's what we call a Bartok pizzicato, a, a pitz that was coined actually by the composer Bartok where you snap the string on the fingerboard of the instrument to create that massive sound and it comes out of nowhere, but it's such a interesting moment. It's marked with five Fs in the score for the cellos and basses. It's supposed to be incredibly loud. Any other thoughts on that, that passage? Yeah, well... An amazing orchestral technique used by Mahler there, um, but it sort of represents, right in this scherzo, the, the moment of sort of greatest uh, uh, despair, hopelessness, uh, sort of lost in this nightmare. And I think it's so interesting that it is immediately followed by sort of the most upbeat, happy waltz music version of the waltz music, um, as if the waltz itself. It's just sort of trying to put a happy face uh, on, a, on, on a much deeper problem, a much deeper issue. And I think this is something that we come really you know, face-to-face with in the last movement of the symphony. Yeah, I, I'm glad we included the last part of that clip because I think it highlights what you were saying so, so well. That At this point especially, the waltz feels really almost deliriously happy to the point where it's, it's over the top. It's clearly mocking this whole waltz idea and so i think that sheds some light if we weren't clear on it before it it's certainly clear now so the movement then ends with with a nice coda that peters out fantastic scherzo movement from Mahler, and then we go to the the second knocked music movement we're not going to spend too much time on this one but it is a delightful movement that as ben mentioned earlier uses two really really 
abnormal instruments for the symphonic complement, a guitar and a mandolin. And this one is really... This one I struggle to wrap my mind around a little bit more as to this whole heading of Nacht music because it really, it's kind of a serenade of sorts. It's, it's really a chamber piece. But let's listen to the beginning and maybe Ben or you or someone else can, can enlighten me as to how this one is in the same world that we've been in the past few mu movements. So Ben, what do you what do you make of of that music? It's it sounds, I don't I don't know what to make of it. Well, it, I mean it's it's uh, it's unusual. I think one of the ways to look at it is uh, there's such an interesting sort of symmetry in this piece uh, that the third movement is sort of its own dark world. It is sandwiched on either side by these two notched musiques, and then on the other side of those are the first and last movements, both. Uh, enormous, sort of colossally sized movements. Um, I look at the second and fourth movements as being sort of two sides of a coin. The second movement we talked about uh, being sort of forest music, uh, you know, with natural sounds, natural world. This is so deeply human, this music. Uh, you use the word serenade, and you can sort of imagine you know, the one violin player that opens this, this movement, standing outside someone's window, you know, with a guitarist and a mandolin player. Uh, I think Mahler even gives us a clue in his tempo, uh, Andante Amoroso, uh, Amoroso meaning loving, lovingly. Uh, and I, so I think this movement is sort of the intimate human side to the second movement. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, yeah, it, that, that, Already, I'm I'm more sold than I was a few minutes. Not that I don't like this music. It just, it feels, yeah, like a totally different world from, from the the second movement. So we get some more of this kind of song like serenade music. Then we develop this idea a little bit, almost like we're we're in a sonata movement of sorts, which we wouldn't expect. But let me play you a little passage where some of these thematic ideas from the opening are developed. So then we get a little more developmental 
ideas, we transform these themes, and then we get a trio, as we might expect. This movement is really pretty standard in terms of a scherzo trio, scherzo layout. So let's just hear a little bit of the trio music as well, so we're familiar with that. That's interesting. Definitely a nice, soulful pairing there for our trio. So we get more scherzo music, we get a little coda to this movement, and then I think we should keep trudging on because we've got a massive last movement to get to. Interesting last movement. To me, one of my all-time favorite Mahler movements. This movement has actually received an enormous amount of criticism from the highest levels. We've talked a lot about Adorno on this podcast, and I think the one movement of Mahler that Adorno really hated was the last movement of this Seventh Symphony. Other people have also criticized it for just being overly bombastic, overly cheerful, happy, sunny. Um, I'll let our listeners decide on that. Ben, maybe you have a take on that as we as we move through the uh, the music here, but Regardless, personally, I I find this to be one of my all-time favorite movements of Mahler in any symphony, and so I, I don't understand the criticisms. But this is a... It's called, it's labeled as Rondo Finale, and it is really a rondo. Um, a musical rondo is something where we, we basically have a... It's kind of like a verse-chorus type of form, where we have something that we keep coming back to that we keep repeating, and then we get interesting different materials in between, like A, B, A, C, A is a rondo, A, B, A, C, A, B, A is a rondo. Anything where we keep coming back to this kind of A section is rondo music. So let's actually listen to a, a good stretch here, uh, about two minutes of music. So we hear the opening rondo theme with, there's a lot of ideas that, and so listen carefully to this opening minute and a half, and then I'll let it play all the way through to our first B section of music so we can hear how it transitions very quickly to that different world of the, the B section.
Well, what an opening. Uh, really sort of wakes you up from the fourth movement. Um, I do... Uh, interesting that you mentioned this the idea of this movement being criticized for so many various reasons. Um, and I do have some thoughts about it, which I... Uh, would be very curious to hear your take on Jacob. But, yes, please. Uh, let's keep let's keep going through it. Um, let's talk about it at the end. Yeah. Uh, but for now, this is just uh, full of of grandeur and energy and life. Yeah, and interestingly, so we get a lot of different thematic ideas here that are going to come back. One that comes many times is. We hear that many, many times. And it makes me think of the beginning of Wagner's Meistersinger, which goes... It's almost... And that's that's well known for being one of the most C major, boisterous overtures. Opti- Wagner was often criticized for Meistersinger for this this opera being overly boisterous. So it's very interesting that their themes are connected like that as well, because it's kind of the one black sheep of Wagner's output. A lot of people see this movement as the black sheep of, of Mahler's output. So anyways, we, we get, uh, this new section, this B section of music. Then a lot of our themes return as they do in a, a rondo. And we come to this new third idea, we might call it a, a C. I hate, I, there's a problem in, in music that when we, you have the A section, you have the B section, you have the C section, which is a term that's also used for, you know, <laughs> delivering babies surgically. And so I hate saying C section, but this is the C section of music here. Let's listen to a little bit of that. So we get this third theme with that repeated note idea that we hear many, many times. Again, you can hear Mahler doing this quintessential technique of having things really jut out, going from very soft to very loud very quickly. So that's going to be our third theme. And those are really the main ideas that I want us to remember as we go through this movement. So we come back, we get more of our our chorus, our rondo ideas... We hear this theme again, this this third theme. And then we get to a passage where he starts pushing the tempo, and this leads almost to a development-like passage. And so it almost makes us think that we're in something of a sonata form. And so let's listen to a little bit of that, because these themes start getting mixed together, played with, transformed slightly. We start shifting keys, and it results in us eventually making our way to, this movement is in C major, we make our way to the relatively distant key of A major, a kind of developmental process, to hear this chorus come back again now in, in a different key. So let's listen to that passage.
Well, such an interesting aspect of this last movement. Um, it so much music comes out of absolutely nowhere. Uh, for instance, in this passage that we just heard, starting in A major, as you mentioned, and going with this extremely chromatic music, very fast eighth notes in the strings, and then all of a sudden, completely out of nowhere, comes the original Ronda music, which, by the way, uh, starts with the fourth, just like the opening theme of the first movement. Yeah, we should um, we should mention that it goes just like the fourth of the first movement. Yeah. Yeah, but I do think uh, this music in the last movement frequently feels very sort of schizophrenic, very all over the place. Uh, and part of the reason for that is he's constantly going from one thing to another with no transition. Uh, in, in the way that another composer might give you some transitional music between the sections of a rondo. Mahler doesn't do that at all. He just puts one thing right up against the next and goes from one to the next without anything in between. Yeah, it's, you know, and that's actually, it's a very good point because even from the very beginning we've been introduced to that idea when we went from the A section to the B section, we land on this one chord and suddenly everything vanishes and we're in a totally different world. That actually becomes, I don't want to spoil it, but the very, very ending of this piece, the last bar, gives us some of that as well, of this like schizophrenic, almost entirely like you're shifting a gear on a car without any preparation whatsoever. Um, So yeah, so we, we should keep an ear out for that as well. We hear some more of our second theme music, uh... And then we come back. I want to play for us another return of the our chorus, our main rondo idea. This time in another key. We're we're hitting every key it seems. B flat. And now this comes back with with bells as well. And these bells, these Herdenglocken that that Mahler used often. We we heard them in the sixth symphony, and and we're going to hear them now. They always signal something important, so let's listen to this this short passage where we get our, our Rondo theme returning now with, with bells added to the complement. Yeah, so we hear this music come with with these bells. We know those are going to play. We think they're going to play an important role, which which they will. We hear some more of this uh, this third theme music that we just heard at the end of that clip clip where everyone's playing in unison, and it kind of builds up at this point. It becomes really wild. It still feels like we're in something of a of a development because we're hitting all of these keys. It then gets very quiet. We hear some more of this third theme idea. We're playing with these these th- third these three theme groups. Then we return again to our chorus, our, our uh, rondo theme. This time in D major, totally different key again. Uh, again, we hear these these bells in the background. And then I want to play for you a very important moment. I think in the form. It's we we've been doing all this development and this moment in a way almost feels like a recapitulation to us. 
but interesting you'll interestingly you'll hear a theme in here that if you're listening closely is not even from this movement we've taken it from somewhere else let me play for you that that passage when we when it feels like we maybe have come back to some sort of recapitulation or some really important late moment in this the form of this movement Sorry, I, I got ahead of myself. It's <laughs> actually the next passage I'm going to play for you is the one that to me sounds like the the real recapitulation of a lot of our ideas. But uh, what I mentioned before, we, we get a theme that, that we may not expect. Any thoughts on that, that passage? Uh, sure. Well, of course, the theme that comes back is the main theme from the first movement. Um, it, at the same time, though, we hear all the themes, basically, from this movement. So not only do we have all the themes from this movement layered on top of each other, we actually even have one from a previous movement. Um, but it's really interesting to see here how organically the piece is created. Because right at the beginning of the excerpt that you played, you'll hear the main chorus rondo tune from this movement, which begins with that descending fourth, as we mentioned. And then immediately after, the tune from the first movement, which begins with the same descending fourth. So we hear, right off the bat, uh, the connection between these two themes. Uh, from here, actually, until the end of the piece, is for me some of the most interesting music that Mahler ever wrote. Uh, every turn is completely unexpected. Uh, seemingly, there's just total confusion. There's 15 people shouting on top of one another. Uh, it's just awesome to listen to. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Just to illustrate that, the, the two themes we're talking about is the fifth movement, the theme is going... And then it goes... We'll recognize that from the this, this movement. And the theme from the first movement... We heard that in the... The first movement, they're very closely linked, actually, and we, if we hadn't already noticed that, we, we do kind of notice that here, as, as you mentioned, he piles all of these themes onto one another. So then let's listen to the moment I, I anticipated too soon, where this first, again, we get this incredible process of the first movement theme coming back, along with so many themes from this, this last Rondo finale.
So interestingly, we hear that first movement theme again, and it feels like an arrival point, but we're, we're somehow a half step too high still. We're in the key of D flat instead of in the key of C. We're just, we've slightly missed our mark some, at, at some point, and so clearly we still have a little bit of work left to be done. But you hear there, marvelously, all of those themes coming back with... We hear the third theme accompanying the theme from the first movement. It's this really radiant section. Then it dissolves, as we heard. We hear some more of our our third theme idea. And then we get finally to the closing coda of this movement. And usually I haven't been playing the endings of, of these symphonies on these podcasts because I've been leaving them to our listeners, but... This is my. This is actually my favorite ending to any Mahler symphony, as as uh, much as people might disagree with that. So I'm gonna play the last two minutes or so because it's just it's worth a listen. Everything that we've been talking about comes to fruition here. We finally get back to C major. We get those bells that have been foreshadowed for us. We get this schizophrenic almost ending. So let's just let's enjoy these last uh, two minutes of of the seventh symphony together. So you hear right at the end, it's such a hair-raising, thrilling ending to the piece, you hear right at the end the music stop on this weird chord, we don't know what's going to happen, and then bang, it ends. One thing that I love 
Ben, I'm curious your thoughts about this, but I think we maybe even talked about this. There's this weird, weird marking in, in the end of this symphony where everyone holds that chord and everyone is supposed to re-articulate the last note. So you go boom, boom, except for the trumpets who have this slur into the last note, which means that it's supposed to be connected. And on this recording, I've never heard any other conductor or orchestra do it. You hear the trumpets kind of slide into that last note. It's an incredible effect. If I ever do this piece, absolutely doing that, stealing that from Tenstedt, what do you think? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, you're not stealing it from Tenstedt, you're just doing what Mala tells you. Exactly, do. I guess that's true. Yeah. Any I mean, thoughts? I'm, we, we teased it, but what are your, uh, give us your, your impressions of this movement as a whole. Well, well, I think it works on a number of levels. First of all, it's just great to listen to. I mean, it's just, it's great music. It's so inventive. It is so surprising and unique. Um, for me, this whole piece is like sort of seeing inside somebody's brain. And not just somebody's brain, but sort of a, a, a crazy person's brain. <laughs> well, was more than a little bit crazy himself. Um, it, it, the way things flow sort of organically and yet sort of randomly at the same time uh, is so unique to him. And the way that I view this last movement uh, is, for me, it's all parody. I, 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 don't, I can't take it seriously. It's, mm -hmm. it's too much. The piece ends so many times in the last five minutes. There are so many times when you think, okay, surely this must be the ending. Surely this must be the ending. But no, there's more. <laughs> and each time more bombastic than the previous. Uh, for me, in the first four movements, we see uh, something. It could be a person. It could be a, a culture, a society, a city. Something with deep structural problems, insecurities, anxieties. Uh, and in the last movement, I think what we see is an attempt to cover it up. You know, it's like uh, it's like the person who walks around all the time with the biggest, fakest smile on their face. Huh. And, you think, and you think, okay, surely they must be hiding something. <laughs> that's, that's this last movement for me. And I think we see a real moment of, of genuineness in it when that first movement theme returns in that excerpt that we played. Yeah. Uh, which is some of the darkest music in the movement. And from there to the end, it is by no means all happy. But what it is, is either deeply troubled, anxious music, or the most overblown, uh, ecstatic music you could possibly write. So that's... And I think that's I think those two things go really closely together. That's really interesting. So, so essentially, you you make the all of this happiness and and triumph of the finale out to be not fully genuine. It's in the context of the rest of the piece. This is one of those moments of, of which there are many in Mahler of of parody or irony or something like that. Yeah, I do. Especially at the end, where it really uh, where it really takes off. I mean, you can look at it you know in other places as well for instance one of the earlier excerpts we played of the uh, really fast chromatic string notes which all of a sudden breaks off and is interrupted by the return of the rondo theme uh, as if this whirlwind uh, uh, of strings and chromaticism 
is sort of the beginning of these anxious thoughts, these kinds of de- uh, depressed, depressed uh, struggle issues, um, which, no, we can't even look at it. We can't even face it. We can't even think about it. We have to immediately return back to our happy, you know, happy-go-lucky march here. You know, that's that's really, it's it's interesting. I've, you know, yeah, I, I struggle with this. It's It's something for all of our listeners to try to, I think, figure out for themselves and to decide. You don't have to make a decision. Of course, it's always up for interpretation. But if this is kind of... Yeah, what the messages of this last movement, and specifically if it's one of of optimism, or again one of, if if this is just too overdone to the point where it's it's potentially parody or something. As performers, I think that's a real interesting question because it informs a lot about the performance decisions you make about how how much you choose to overdo this, like sliding into the last note that feels like a very almost grotesque, ironic end to the symphony. And so, if you interpret this this movement that way, it makes perfect sense. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting, interesting, uh, nut for our, our listeners to wrap their mind around it. But as you also mentioned, what, a what, a, what nut is there more fun to try to crack than this one? It's just so fun to listen to. Oh yeah. And I want to, I want to say one more thing about it, please, which is everything I just said, I have no evidence for <laughs> this is this is how I have come to make the piece work for me. Yeah. Um, but but see, by no means is that uh, the only way. And that's, we talk about that all the time on this podcast, though, which is is the beauty of music, I think, is that uh, the evidence that you have for that, the, just like the evidence I have and everybody else has for potentially forming their opinions about a piece, is what's in the music. And Mahler himself was really, really hesitant to provide us with any evidence. In fact, these are really absolute pieces without any sort of story, but as we've mentioned previously, he pulled a lot of the storyline titles from even his earlier symphonies because this is exactly what he wanted the listener to do, is to go through this process of of examination and trying to figure it out. And so there's certainly no right answer, but there's also... You can continue clawing as much as you possibly can to find the right answer, and that's what's what makes our job, I think, so exciting. But also, just listening to music is is the endless search for for a perfect interpretation and and just a general understanding of of what's going on here. So, any last any last ideas on the on the piece, or should we should we wrap it there? Uh, I have nothing more to say. Listen, you've been fantastic. I uh, I want to thank you so much for for coming on, breaking down this fantastic symphony with us. Um, thank you for having me. This was uh, this was a lot of fun. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, I'm. Uh, I want to say thanks to all of our listeners too for for tuning in as always, and and we will. I want to actually mention. I think I, I hate to say it, but I think due due to some coronavirus stuff and just everybody's life is all up in the air, tomorrow is going to be a little bit of a travel day for me. And so we're going to take tomorrow off, give everyone a, a chance to catch up, and we will be back on Sunday going back and doing the the fifth symphony that we, we skipped from earlier. But thanks to all of our listeners. Thank you, Ben, and, and we'll, uh, we'll be back with you soon. Thanks, Jacob.